When the War Came Home to Oregon, a 75-year-old true story of courage, atonement, and forgiveness. Nabuo Fujita was determined to bring his family's katana with him 5,000 miles across the Pacific. The samurai sword had been passed from one generation of his family to the next for over 400 years and accompanied Fujita on every important journey of his life. If samurai tradition was to be respected, he would eventually pass it down to his son. Fujita had a different plan, however. He had been invited by the Junior Chamber of Commerce, the JCs, to the 1962 Azalea Festival in their hometown of Brookings, Oregon. This was an annual Memorial Day event for the town on the southern coast just north of the California border. Nabuo Fujita eventually accepted the invitation and then whatever difficulties there would be transporting the katana. It was essential to his trip because he intended to present the sword to the people of Brookings as a gift of peace and friendship. If that plan didn't work out, however, he would need the katana for another equally important purpose, to commit seppuku, the hideous ritual suicide reserved for samurai who had brought shame on themselves. In June of 1942, the submarine I-25 of the Imperial Japanese Navy used its deck-mounted 14-centimeter gun to lob 17 shells toward the U.S. mainland. The target was Civil War-era Fort Stevens on the northern Oregon coast near the mouth of the Columbia River. Damage from the attack was light, mostly to a nearby baseball diamond. The base consciously chose not to return fire. Muzzle flashes would more precisely define and locate the target for the I-25's gunners and probably make matters worse. It worked. After the brief attack, the submarine quickly slipped back below the black waves of the northern Pacific. Assuming one of the goals of the mission was to bring the fight to the shores of the United States mainland, the crew of the I-25 would have considered the mission a success. The I-25 looked different than other submarines. There was a large cylindrical canister lying on its side, half buried in the deck, and extending forward from the shark's fin-like conning tower, the substantial structure extending up from the submarine's deck at amidships. The canister had a heavy reinforced door at the front that opened up its full diameter. From there, a slightly inclined set of rails ran forward almost to the bow. There was also a large crane bolted to the deck, it would have been more suited to loading cargo on a tramp steamer than for any conceivable role on an attack submarine. All this apparatus supported one specific capability of the I-25, to store an aircraft during both surface and submerged operations, catapult that aircraft into the air while loitering on the surface, and hoist that same aircraft back on board in the event it returned. Earlier in 1942, the I-25 had successfully launched reconnaissance flights over Australia, New Zealand, and the Aleutian Islands off Alaska. Despite the awkward, gadgety appearance, the ingenious submarine aircraft carrier actually worked. Warrant Flying Officer Nabuo Fujita may have wondered why the I-25 was lying off the coast of Oregon at all. 
He sat in the cockpit of his Yokosuka E-14Y seaplane locked to the catapult rails on the rolling deck in the pre-dawn darkness. As he waited, he may have contemplated the rationale of the rate for which he had been chosen. Deliver an unexpected, terrifying attack across the Pacific thousands of miles from home. Fujita would have recalled that in April of that same year, Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle led a squadron of B-25 medium bombers off the deck of the Hornet and onward to bomb Tokyo. This was a scant four months after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. One of the primary objectives of the Doolittle raid was to boost the morale of a deeply shaken public back home in the U.S. On this day, it was Fujita's mission to return that fight to the U.S. mainland, for many of the same reasons. As pilot Fujita advanced the throttle of the Glen, the nickname for the type of aircraft he would fly, and waited for the launch signal, he may have thought, if we are to do as Doolittle did, why are we here in the middle of nowhere? Boeing in Seattle or Hughes in Glendale or a hundred more important targets were within easy reach of the I-25. He may have glanced back to Petty Officer Shoji Okuda, the flight's observer, searching for an answer. Then, as leader of the mission, determined somewhere else, by someone else, he would have turned back to his instrument panel and focused. He may also have felt for his katana, which he carried on every flight. As the appointed time approached, he would have seen the gray waves emerging from the twilight as he continued to wait for the signal from the deck in front of him. When that moment finally arrived, Fujita and Okuda and their glen would be hurled explosively into the drizzly Oregon morning, and into history. In 1962, John F. Kennedy was president, and Bill McChesney, the president of the Brookings Jaycees, was one of those born in this century and to whom the torch had been passed. It was an optimistic time. The 17 years elapsed since the end of World War II were almost enough time for thoughts of celebration of victory to evolve to reconciliation with former foes. Almost. McChesney and his fellow JCs boldly proposed the pilot of the only wartime bombing mission over the U.S. mainland be invited to that year's Azalea Festival in Brookings. It made perfect sense to McChesney, given that the missions had been conducted near Mount Emily in the nearby Siskiyou National Forest less than 20 years before. That the missions were largely ineffective must have made it easier. Two bombs had been dropped in the first flight conducted on September 9th. There was an indication that two more had been dropped during a similar flight on September 29th, although no physical evidence had ever been found. Nobody had been killed or injured in what had become known as the lookout air raids. Not everybody shared McChesney's optimistic view of the world. There were some in Brookings that believed it was neither the time nor McChesney's place to bring this man to the U.S., The Azalea Festival in Brookings occurs on Memorial Day, which is intended to honor U.S. military veterans. Many Brookings residents had been in the forces during the Second World War, and some served in the Pacific Theater. McChesney was pressured to rescind the invitation. A full-page article warning against the idea was run in the Brookings Harbor Pilot, the local newspaper. A petition was circulated that over 100 residents of the small town had signed. McChesney thought it was nothing more than a heated discussion he could withstand. 
That is, until he received a death threat in the middle of the night directed towards both him and his family. His well-intended gesture of goodwill and reconciliation now involved potentially putting his life, and more importantly, the life of his family, on the line. After they launched from the deck of the I-25, Fujita would have climbed the Glen to altitude, turned eastward, and followed a course toward the Oregon coast, which would have been just over the horizon. Cruising at a little over 100 miles per hour, it would have taken no more than a few minutes before they would see and then quickly cross the coast. Oregon lies at roughly the same latitude as Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost major island. It's conceivable the waves breaking on the dusky green coast may have reminded them of the old-growth forest of Hokkaido's Shiratoko Peninsula. The sight might even have made them feel a little homesick. Someone walking on the beach just north of Brookings that early September morning would have found the sight of the bomb-laden glen difficult to comprehend as it appeared from over the horizon. Squinting westward would reveal nothing. There would have been no invasion force lying off the coast, no massive buildup of assets, no air raid siren, no warning whatsoever. There would be, however, the empty black dread of not knowing and no way to figure out what else might lie over the horizon and what else might be coming soon. The mine might easily have raced to the worst possible scenario. The invasion of the United States was underway and life was about to change forever. Any relief that the aircraft's bombs were not destined for Brookings itself would have dissipated quickly as the plane continued inland and out of sight once again. From the coastline, Fujita would guide the Glen toward Mount Emily in the Siskiyou Mountains. The 76-kilogram incendiary bombs it carried were specifically designed not to explode, but rather burn long and hot once they hit the ground. Fujita's mission was to drop these bombs in the forest to start and spread wildfires. These would consume precious resources and foster panic in a startled population on the U.S. mainland. After delivering the payload to the target, the Glen would likely have circled for a few minutes to assess the damage, mostly using the columns of smoke curling upwards from the fires. As their limited fuel began to curtail their flight, they would once again turn westwards, first to the coast and then into the open, featureless Pacific. Somewhere over the horizon, the I-25 lay waiting. They would find it, land on the rough sea close by, and get craned back on board. The aircraft would then be quickly disassembled, restowed in the deck hangar below the conning tower, and once everything was sealed, the I-25 would once again slip below the surface and disappear. The entire attack, from launch to recovery, would have lasted no more than a few hours. Other than the new small fires, now smoldering in the damp Siskiyou forest, it was like the I-25, the Glen, and its crew had never been there. The same columns of smoke Observer Okuda would have seen from the air were also spotted by the firewatch Howard Gartner working his shift at the lookout tower near Mount Emily. After he reported the fire to his dispatch office, Gardner would hike to the location and begin to fight whatever remained of the blaze. He was soon joined by Keith Johnson of the Bear Wallow Fire Lookout and also by a suitably equipped firefighting crew the next day. Their combined efforts aided by a not-so-unusual damp Oregon fall, quickly extinguished the fires and prevented any further damage.
Fujita and Okuda would once again be in their glen over the Siskiyous a few weeks later with the same mission. On this flight, they would have been able to confirm that the first two bombs they had dropped had little effect. There were no massive wildfires burning in the Oregon forest. The outcome of this second mission was to be even less certain. There were no smoke columns, no bomb damage, no physical evidence of any kind that the two bombs they carried that day had been dropped at all. Once the Oregon missions were complete, the I-25 would continue to operate more conventionally in the eastern Pacific with lethal and reprehensible effect. Eventually it would head west toward Japan. In less than a year, the I-25 would be sunk by the USS Ellet near the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. By that time, Nobuo Fujita had been transferred to other duties, which included training kamikaze suicide pilots in the increasingly desperate closing days of the campaign prosecuted by Imperial Japan. On that slightly brighter day in late September of 1942, however, Fujita and Okuda may have begun to contemplate the quixotic, futile mission they were on. They may have found an unnamed mountain lake and harmlessly dropped their payload there, or in the Pacific, as they made their way back to find the I-25, pitching and rolling in the listless ocean swells. Before that, beyond the reach of their chain of command, they may have circled above the gently shimmering Siskiyou Forest for a few minutes more than was really necessary. They may have turned and twisted in the air, and simply admired the luxuriously piled forest fabric draped into soft chines, cut with crystal river valleys and dotted with silver dollar lakes stretching to the horizon. Before finally turning west to begin trudging back across the Pacific, they may have realized the absurdity of trying to destroy by deliberately setting on fire a place that simply reminded them of home. Bill McChesney and the Jaycees urgently needed to discuss whether they would accede to the pressure, take back the invitation, and cancel Fujita's trip. McChesney convened a meeting of the Jaycees, and perhaps surprisingly, they voted unanimously to proceed with the plan. They felt it was simply the right thing to do. News of the controversy reached all the way back to Ibaraki Prefecture, where the Fujita family lived after the war. Nabuo Fujita was concerned he would be publicly humiliated and perhaps even put on trial for war crimes in Brookings. But he was committed to making the trip and bringing his family with him, whatever the price he might personally pay. On their first night in Brookings, the Fujita family was accommodated in Bill McChesney's own home. In the week that followed, the visitors were made welcome by the overwhelming majority of Brookings citizens. Even President Kennedy wrote to congratulate McChesney and the Jaycees on their efforts to promote peace and international friendship. At an evening banquet during the visit, guided by the ancient samurai tradition for atonement and reconciliation with former enemies, Fujita gave the family's katana to his hosts. Nabuo Fujita dedicated the rest of his life to his relationship with Brookings, Oregon, and its citizens. In 1985, he fulfilled a long-standing promise to bring exchange students from the Brookings High School for an educational visit to Japan. On a trip to Brookings in 1992, Fujita planted a coastal redwood at the site of the small crater his bombs had left near Mount Emily. 
1995, he helped move the katana from its original location at Brookings City Hall to a new permanent display at the newly constructed public library in Brookings. A few days before his death in 1997, at the age of 85, Nabuo Fujita was made an honorary citizen of Brookings. A year later, his daughter, Yoriko Asakura, brought some of her father's ashes from Japan and buried them at the bomb site in the mountains. It seemed fitting that Nobuo Fujita's earthly remains would help nourish and regrow for countless future generations the Siskiyou forest he had come to love. In 2017, the Fujita family's katana is still on display in Brookings. I'm Terence C. Gannon, and I'm not there yet. Thank you so much for listening. I want to take a brief moment to announce that the Not There Yet podcast is now a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This is a great new initiative dedicated to the support and development of high-quality, independent podcasts produced in our home of beautiful Alberta, Canada, It's well worth your time checking out the members' podcast, which can all be found in one place at albertapodcastnetwork.com. That's just the way it sounds, no spaces. In a moment, I will also talk about the vital role ATB plays in powering the Alberta Podcast Network. Not There Yet is a regular series of short essays podcasted from the second decade of the 21st century. They are all written and read by me, and the entire podcast is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show on iTunes. It really helps build the audience, which means I get to keep doing this. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're proud to be a member of the new Alberta Podcast Network. APN is powered by ATB, and let me take a moment to explain a little. ATB is a financial institution, sort of like a bank, but better in many ways, here in beautiful Alberta, Canada, where the Not There Yet podcast is based. ATB has stepped in to directly support the Alberta Podcast Network, which in turn directly supports this show. This means I can keep bringing you the Not There Yet essays on into the future. To find out why ATB is like a bank, but better, please check them out at atb.com listen. They really deserve a moment of your time. I truly and humbly thank them for their support. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, remember it's the journey not the destination. It really doesn't matter if you're not there yet. Thank you.